<laughs> you, did you vote today? You get a shot. Y'all ready? Gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Raj Nation Innovations Discover Your Inner Awesome Podcast. My name is Rajiv Nathan, aka the Raj Nation. I am your show's host, the founder of Raj Nation Innovation, as well as a hip hop artist and a yoga instructor. Above all else, I am a storyteller. And I am joined by my co host, Victoria Cohen. Victoria is the voice behind the blog almondsandasana.com. She is a fellow yogi and a community activist focused on helping you make lifestyle choices that positively impact you and the people you serve. This is Discover Your Inner Awesome, the only show where you get to eavesdrop on conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, and musicians about the stories, the journeys, the struggles, but most importantly, the questions. The questions that help creative thinkers like you and I better understand who we are, what we're doing, and how we can do it better. Is real talk with real people doing real big things to uncover the real side of success. Now, before we dive into today's conversation, I would like to extend an invitation if you are not a member already. Join our tribe by going to discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Enter your email address there, and you will never miss another episode of the show, getting a notification in your inbox every single Monday when we launch a new episode. You'll also get my stories, advice, and tips throughout the month on how you as a startup can make your pitch a performance. All right, let's dive in now to our conversation on today's episode of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Welcome, everybody, to this week's episode of Discover Your Inner Awesome. Today on the podcast, we have sports journalist Scott Phillips. Scott, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Now, our topic today, and for everyone's background, Scott and I met each other in college at DePaul. We've been friends for about a decade now. Roughly, I'd say. Yeah. Um, we've had a lot of conversations about life in that time. But I'm excited to do this because we've never really talked about, like, like I don't know, like, the lineage of your of your work history and everything sure. and how it all built up. So that'll be fun to do with you. So our topic today is how do you wear all the hats? Mm-hmm. And when we talked on the phone the other day, you were like, this is what I've been mulling on recently. So why is this on your mind? Why is it important to you? Well, for me, uh, it's my busiest time of year. I'm a college basketball writer for the most part, which means March Madness, which means the American public actually cares about what I do for three weeks of the year. So the spotlight is on me. I have to make sure that everything is tight, everything's prepared and focused for this point in the year because, let's face it, there's not a lot going on right now in the American calendar and particularly the American sports calendar. So there's a lot of focus on March Madness. There's a lot of things I need to do in terms of radio interviews. I do some television with NBC Sports Chicago covering the high school beat as well. I have writing I have to do with NBC Sports and NBC News. And there's a lot of different things I have to do in terms of just uh, radio interviews, TV appearances, writing, and keeping everything so that I'm always focused and I'm always ready for the task at hand. And I'm juggling two beats as well. I cover the high school basketball uh, beat in Illinois for NBC Sports Chicago. So having to cover college basketball and high school basketball at the same time from November to March is something I have to juggle on a daily basis. So that's kind of where the multiple hats angle comes into play. And when you deal with the different multimedia aspects as well, that's where it kind of you know gets difficult at times. And this is something that a lot of our listeners who are 
running companies who are st founding startups, like this is what you have to do day in and day out is pretty much play all the roles at one time. And I know given your line of work too, a lot of it is nights and weekends because that's yes, where games are played. Definitely. So that's where we are today. Mm -hmm. If we rewind the clock, Flavor Flav style, right? Because he wore a big, he didn't say rewind, but he did wear a big clock. He did wear a big clock. <laughs> so if we take the big clock and we rewind it, I met you at DePaul. Mm -hmm. Did you know you were going to be a sports journalist then? Or? Yes. Okay. At that point, I think I did. Uh, when we met Raj, it was through, I believe, the uh, Chicago High School Classic, which was a basketball all-star game founded by the website I helped write with by a guy by the name of Kevin Devitt, who's a good friend of ours, another DePaul grad. He and I... Currently uh, uh, president of basketball operations at UAB. Uh, he's an assistant coach now, actually. Oh, wow. He's elevated. So Kevin and I in college um, got together. He started this website, WindyCityHSHoops.com. I joined on as kind of the lead journalist. He was more of like a guy who would run around and do big picture stuff. And the All-Star Game ended up being our big picture, big ticket item. And so uh, we built this website together. We had this All-Star Game going. We wanted to use this website as a platform to elevate our statuses because we were getting shunned at DePaul University. I was trying to write for the DePaulia, the student newspaper, and they had turned me down to be the sports editor. They gave it to a theater student who wanted to do stories every week on the things they wanted. I was more of the person who pitched them ideas that I wanted to do, and they gave it to the person that they felt was the best fit for them. So that got me mad, and that's when we started our own thing, and that's when it got really fun, honestly. We got to experiment with things. We got to see what worked and what didn't work. We got to meet a bunch of people like from the Chicago Sun-Times that helped us get our first job there, and it really set the tone for what it was actually like to do it for yourself and to actually hit the ground running with it. I've got a question. So, um, well, a couple of things. So sure. first of all, so now, right now, are you right? Um, and then are you like on TV? Are you, is it mm -hmm. like, what, what, what other medium? So I write for NBCSports.com on a national level. I write for NBCSportsChicago.com on a local level. And then on NBC Sports Chicago, I help produce a show called High School Lights, which cool. uh, I'm on television on Friday nights. We do Facebook Live and Periscope videos usually during the week. I'll do a couple segments here and there during the year. But yeah, it's a fun transition to go from writing to being on air and to trying to focus and wear the different hats for that sort of thing as well. And it's a very unique thing to have to go from a writing voice to a television voice yeah. because you can be flowery and you can go on these long tangents when you're writing if you have the space to do it. But with television, you got to cut things off and you got to be succinct and you're dealing with certain time parameters and a certain audience. And I think that's been the fun and the challenge of having to juggle those two mediums for the most part. So then taking that back in college, did you what did you study? Like, did you study writing? Mm -hmm. Did you study broadcasting journalism? Like, and did you have backgrounds in all of those things or? It was basically all print journalism. Uh, I really didn't get into the radio and television component of it until I was asked to do so. And it wasn't really a plan of mine to ever go into radio or television. I certainly never expected to be on TV for the first time at 27. But, you know, it's just one of those things that as this business grows, you're expected to do more and more. You're expected to be on camera. You're expected to do radio, expected to handle social media. You're expected to have presence outside of what your career path is. And everything's kind of evolved so dramatically over the last 10 years with the fall of print media and the rise of digital media that I still think people are trying to learn from what the mistakes they've made in the past and how to continue to grow effectively. Yeah. 
And I will say one of the funniest things is when you'll record High School Lights, which is when you record like Friday night, like 10 p.m. Let's yeah. Say, and then it airs like a little bit after that. Yeah. Usually it airs at 11 o'clock on Friday nights. And then he might meet us out. And then the TV will be playing well, NBC Sports, so he'll be with us, but he'll also be on TV at the same time. Were you always, were you always like specifically like really into basketball? Like yeah, as a definitely. Kid, that was like your your favorite sport sports in watch. general. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't say basketball became my first love until like high school though, or I'm sorry, uh, high school and college. Really, I, I always loved the NCAA tournament. I loved high school basketball, but really covering high school basketball in Chicago for the first time when I did the website with Kevin. That's when I kind of fell head over heels in love with it. Um, Derek Rose was really like the guy that pushed me to become a basketball writer. And that's being 100% serious. Like he was so mesmerizing to watch as a senior in high school. And he was a back-to-back state champion. And he was a back-to-back city champion. He was like this mythological figure in Chicago at the time. And I'd never really experienced anything like that growing up in the suburbs and not really having that kind of basketball crazed culture around me. So I just got, you know, just wrapped up in it, I guess you could say. Like, I loved everything about it. I loved the cultural aspects. I loved the basketball. I loved the personalities. I loved how many different people were involved. And yeah, I, I don't really have a lot of regrets getting into basketball since then because it's always something new and different. Yeah. And, and I think one of the things I'm hearing out of this, too, is. And, and also just from knowing you is I think the love for the amateur level, high school and college versus, mm-hmm. and you, you know, you're a big NBA fan as well. Yes, definitely. Kind of the desire for the amateur level seems to be more around like watching players develop and watching mm-hmm. people become professionals, right? Yeah, definitely. That's always been a huge part of what I do, whether it's evaluating the elite high school kids for college or evaluating them for the pro level as well. I've done some NBA draft work and worked the combines, so... I love the development track of basketball, and it's a fascinating one for sports in general because you have high school athletes who are going to be one year removed from being potentially multimillionaires, asked to do many crazy things at the pro level on and off the floor. And it's not something we usually see in other levels of sports after a couple years of college or making through the minors. Yeah. And and with that, too, it's funny because, like, even with your first endeavor into this with Windy City HS Hoops, it was, what, a few people running the show there. Yeah, so just a couple of us. You are having to wear many hats then. Mm-hmm. And then you even produced, you know, the group produced the high school classic, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So let our listeners know, like, what was the high school classic? How did that come about? What were your sort of, what was your role within that, or roles? Yeah, so Kevin, his baby was the all-star game. He really wanted to have something that was a showcase event for the players in our area and that something that we would be producing because the area didn't really have a big, fun all-star game that brought everyone from the area together. It was a lot of regionalized suburban things like a South Suburban all-star game or a city game or a North Suburban game. So we wanted to bring everybody together that we could, not only in the area, but around the state of Illinois. And I think that it ended up being a ton of fun, but it was also a ton of work. And we really had no clue what we were doing the first year. We threw it together last minute. It was at Harper College. Kevin did a lot of the legwork securing the venue and things like that. But there's so many little things about running an event that you don't realize until the moment of. Things like gathering insurance and making sure you have security on staff and having programs and ticket takers, physical ticket stubs if you want them. Just There's so many little components of running an event that we kind of stumbled on that... 
it's funny, like it was such a whirlwind at the time. I don't really remember what I did besides writing the program, dunk, uh, judging the dunk contest because we needed judges for the dunk contest. Again, we were just kind of doing this so haphazardly and by the seat of our pants as college kids. And I give Kevin a ton of credit. Like he really did a ton to put that whole thing together, recruiting the players for it. His parents did a lot as well. And our, my parents certainly as well. So yeah, it was a, a fun learning experience where you're just doing everything a million miles an hour and you feel like you're sleeping three hours a night. How do you think then, so you, you know, there's a couple of years of that game, right? Mm -hmm. um, you end up graduating college. How do you think from having all that experience that the writing and the coverage aspect is what emerged as opposed to being like, Hey, I want to run this event or I want to put on my own basketball games. For me, it was always about writing. That's the reason I started with the site. That was the reason I told Kevin I wanted to be a part of it. And that was always the end goal for me. I think that was what my strength was. That is what I was comfortable with. And uh, when we ended that first season with Windy City HS Hoops, the Chicago Sun-Times hired both of us as college seniors to be on the preps desk there and to be in the newsroom, which at the time in, what was it, I think 2008, you know, you're looking at the newspaper industry still being very relevant and still, you know, viable to the point where it wasn't on the brink of collapse. And we get in there and we think, OK, we're going to be set for life. I'm going to be able to elevate into a college position, into a pro position, because that's what the people told me were sitting here the first day. And then, you know, you see people that are lifelong newspaper employees and they have uh, tears streaming down their face and they're carrying their stuff out in their hands. And the newspaper business really shifted very, very quickly. Within the first six months I was there, it collapsed basically and has never recovered. And it's funny, I always wonder what it had been like if I'd gone in five years earlier. I still have friends who were kind of in that boat, who got in five years before me and who are still there to this day. And for me, it was very different because of just the timing of things. Yeah. Okay, so you get into the Sun-Times. This is out of college, right? Yes. That's, that's stop number one. Yeah, this was while I was still in college, actually. Okay, so yeah. in college, and then it transitions. Mm -hmm. Find out the newspaper industry is taking. I find out you're kind of like living of, it. Yeah, yeah, living it right. <laughs> so you go from okay, I can be set for life to crap. Yeah, <laughs> what what's going through your mind at that point when you think about your own path, journey, career? I was scared. I was really, really scared because. I was a little naive to the industry as a whole. I kind of entered luckily because I went from a website I started to working for a top 10 major market newspaper with really no job interview. I was just asked if I wanted the job by someone who had seen my work and respected me. So I didn't have a real sense of what it was like to actually seek out a job, interview for it, uh, get a lay of the land and what I need to do to get a foot in the door because that was kind of given to me, not given to me. I worked hard for that, yeah, but yeah. it was, it was given to me. It fell into my lap. Yeah. Process so that most people go yeah. So it, it was a strange thing for me. And, uh, you know, I had to regroup a little bit because I was still getting good hours. I was getting consistent money, but I knew that there was no future there. There wasn't something that I could really get a, a foot in and stay in. So I was always looking and that's where I kind of developed the sense of what I have now where I started gaining more and more freelance projects and tacking on more people that I could do work for because I was doing a very specific type of work for the Sun-Times. 
I was generally only covering Chicago area high school players. But at these events I was covering, there were kids from all over the country. So there were story opportunities and there was work I could be doing while I was there that I could get for other entities. And because I was a freelancer at the Sun-Times, that allowed me to tack on other work. And that's when I started to really investigate other freelance opportunities, how I could piece things together to make sure that the trips I, were t I was taking were you know, good for my pocket and good for my sense of mind as well. And it ended up being a thing where now I've got you know five or six different freelance entities that I generally write for when I'm on the road. And I take pride in that. It's fun to be able to juggle those assignments, but you also have to make sure you're putting out your best work at all times. And I, and I think it's important that you talk about you make these trips, but look at how do you make the most out of them mm -hmm. for, in terms of getting paid, which I think like, Victoria, you've seen, like, I've okay. seen too, so many yoga teachers, they don't have to travel, but they will do, uh, you know, 20 different gigs in a week, but not really look at, or, or they'll only realize after the fact, well, crap, I only got paid for like three of those. Did I really yeah. need to do the other 17? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there's a, there's a, you know, lick your chops experience aspect to it. But at some point you got to like, Hey. Yeah, you got to get yeah. paid. You got to yeah. know your worth and you yeah. got to, you know, make the most of it. Like even like, and even now with my own business stuff, if I'm making a trip somewhere, mm. like let's say I'm going for a conference, um, I'm not just going to go for that conference. I'm going to make sure. sure I'm setting up meetings while I'm already in town. Mm -hmm. So that way it's, you have to, especially when it's your, once it becomes your own money. Yeah. And you're not spending a company dime. Mm -hmm. You know, you just become so much more acutely aware of the money out. Yeah, because the money in has to come back. Or, you know, oh, otherwise definitely. you're like, well, crap, why did I do that? Definitely. It's, it's such a weird thing for me because I have these great gigs and I have these great companies that I work for, but I'm technically freelance and I pay for my own travel 99% of the time. So, you know, I know that the responsibilities of what I need to do to get done, but I also have to look for other meetings and other things, as you okay. said, Raj, where you're not wasting your time and you're not wasting your trips and you're not just going to go. There's a sense of why you have to be there and what you're doing and why you're doing it. And uh, that's something I learned over time. There was in the past, as you kind of alluded to, where you felt like you had to be there and you felt like you had to take on as many things as you could and get your name out there. But once you're selective with things and you know which events you have to be at, which events you could skip out on, I think you start to get a better sense of planning ahead and planning what you need to be there for. I, that's really important. I'm glad you kind of rephrased it like that is it's almost like, yeah, you have to start that broad with that broad lens and aspect. Mm -hmm. But once you get narrow and once you become more selective with the things you go to, the assignments you'll take on, you know, what are you covering? Where, you know, where are you headed? All that stuff. Who will you talk to? Yes. Your own value increases, right? Mm -hmm. Because if you're the person who's now able to say no to things, now you can't it's much harder for people to get away with, oh, they'll just do it because they always do it. Yeah. And we don't have to pay them. We're going to pay them crap. It's like, no, like this is a, this is a, becomes a marquee person who we want to have for us. So let's make sure that we take care of that person. Sure. Right. It's like the more you say no, the more yeses open up for you, mm -hmm. ironically enough. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's, it's a weird dynamic because, you know, like you kind of just said, there were times in my career early on where I didn't have many options and I would take on anything I could get. If it was even for like 25 or 30 bucks, you know, just take the story, whatever. I don't care if I break even or, you know, I'm just, I'm learning and I'm figuring things out and going from there. But now, you know, you have prestige entities coming for you and it's nice. It feels really good to know that the work that you've put in 
is now being read by the people that you want to read it and the people that are reaching out to you are the editors that you want to work with and that's a process and that takes time and networking and again being in the right place at the right time in some cases as well because some of the people that I've worked with now over the years are people that I met in random places and random gyms and I know that the work that I put in making a lot of these trips has paid off because you continue to build these relationships all over the country and you have bases in other places besides Chicago. And that's always nice when you can go to Southern California and you know a lot of the people there. When you go to Dallas and you have some of the people that you know there and you start to get a little more sense of the community, not only in terms of where you live, but in terms of expanding your community and making sure that you know what's going on elsewhere. So sort of bringing that back then to the idea of like wearing different hats, have you found that in um, sort of like in this career that you've built and in the, um, you know, finding that you have that you have to do a lot of different things, are there certain things that you like really dread doing and you're like, oh, that's like the part that I really hate, but I know I have to do it. Like, I feel like this was a little <laughs> bit like our podcast last week or what was our question? It was like, at what point do you get your shit together? Get, get your shit together? And it was, yeah. it was very similar. Sure. It was like, um, our, our guest was a photographer and he's like, I'm a photographer, but now it's like my own business and I have to do the finances yeah. and like all these other things. So like in a similar vein, you know, are, are there certain parts of it that you like, you know, that you've grown to love or that you still really despise, but you kind of have to do? Being, being a freelancer, the thing I despise most is having to spend a large amount of time crafting pitches and ideas, mm -hmm. sending those pitches and ideas, and then many times not hearing from the person I send them to or getting rejected. Yeah. That's always the toughest that's part. That's doing your own yeah. PR. And it, all, yeah. and it always will be. Um, and that's I think that's what makes this kind of a unique job is that you do have to seek out your own work if it's not consistently coming to you. And there's an ebb and a flow there because you feel like if you're not working on something, you're kind of losing money. But if you're not looking for work, then how are you going to generate money? Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, at certain times of the year, it's better than others. But I, I think it it never gets easier to be told no or to be ignored and to have to constantly come up with fresh ideas is always the toughest part, I feel like. Yeah. So you've got, you're, you're building the sports journalist arc here of your career. Yes. But I know there was a pit stop with, of all places, Groupon. Yeah. Okay. Aww. So how does that come into the picture? <laughs> that was a dark two years in my life. Um, not to disparage Groupon for anybody out there who likes or, you know, uses Groupon. That was the period in my life where I kind of alluded to. I was scared. The Sun-Times didn't really have a viable future for me. I needed to find something with more stability. At that time, I was reaching my mid-20s, and most of my friends from college had been to the point in their careers where they were making stable money, where on the weekends they were doing fun activities and they were going on trips and I wasn't making that kind of money and I felt left out by things. That was my mistake. Um, I wasn't hanging out with the right people that were conducive to what I needed to be doing with my life and it affected me. So I kind of took some bad advice and I got a full-time job at Groupon and uh, it was a terrible experience for me. It, I wasn't a good fit. Culturally, um, I worked as a site editor there and, you know, it was a very high stress job, which I, I was accustomed to. I mean, I was working in a top 10 major market newsroom on nights and weekends. Like I had been there during the 2008 election night. I know what chaos looks wow. like. So, you know, it's just one of those things where that didn't bother me. But just the way that I was treated by everybody in the company, uh, it was a thankless job. And that, that's not to say me personally. That was just that was our department. We were kind of a thankless department. 
in the in the realm of things and yeah it was an awful experience uh, i couldn't stand working there i i don't take pride in saying this but I, I really didn't put forth my best effort there every day because i just felt like i was trapped and it, it wasn't for me i realized i wasn't a good fit in like a traditional nine to five and it wasn't a traditional nine to five they had me working crazy hours different hours every week weekends holidays but I just didn't fit into that office culture the way that I thought I was going to, especially after working an office job as a kid. So, you know, I took that detour. Once I got out of there, that's when I kind of refreshed the batteries a little bit and started to recharge and think my next plan's over. I think that's a really interesting point you brought up about the fact that, like, it wasn't so much that before Groupon that you were doing the wrong thing, but that maybe, like, your group of friends or what you were aspiring to like from a social perspective mm -hmm. or a you know a financial perspective wasn't wasn't right maybe, you know maybe yeah. it was that I think that's like a really a really interesting thing because I worked in I worked for Pepsi in a very corporate setting mm -hmm. um, for five five and a half years and then I left a little over a year ago to blog and teach yoga and like mm -hmm. you know have a very different kind of schedule and um, you know I have friends that kind that do both um, and it, it is interesting I I think one just to kind of compare like the lifestyles of yeah, each. Yeah, definitely. But trying really hard not to like aspire specifically to one or to feel like you're behind because you don't have that person's lifestyle and like vice versa. Like I was actually with a bunch of Pepsi friends last night and you know, they're like, oh, your lifestyle, yada, yada. And I'm like, it's great. But like, there's also parts that aren't like, I don't have the same stable income you do. And that's yeah. like really scary and like, doesn't feel good. Um, but I also like actually really enjoy what I'm doing. And I, mm. and I don't mind that I'm waking up at five, five thirty to like go teach or, you know, whatever, because I really enjoy it. Um, but it's just, it's, it's, it's interesting. I like that point. And I feel like now that I'm in my early thirties, it's easier for me as well, because you become more of a stable figure in who you're going to be the rest of your life. You're not figuring things out in your mid twenties. You're not new income, new money, figuring out your, your nightlife and everything. <laughs> so I think that was part of it too. The timing of it just was unfortunate. If I was, I think in the, my point of life now where I am happily engaged and I do own a condo and I do know what my priorities are that I wouldn't get as phased. But at that time, everything that I thought was going to be my future had been shaken to my core, my job, my career, my everything and my lifestyle because of my career, essentially. And it was it was a difficult turning point, but I'm glad it was one that I figured out wasn't the right fit for me in terms of working at Groupon or a company like that. Yeah, the kind of that like comparison to other but that's a huge thing every entrepreneur goes through is mm -hmm. everyone else's life looks like this my life my bank account Instagram looks like yeah. doesn't help yeah <laughs> they were saying that last night I was like my insta life <laughs> yeah is that what you mean right and you know like um I did a song a little over a year ago called voices and it was kind of about like the low point of this of the journey mm -hmm. and one of the lyrics is you tell yourself to hustle and fulfill your diploma it's different now all your friends shop at Williams Sonoma mm -hmm. and that's like to me that's like the kind of epitome of this whole thing where you look and you see you know it's particularly friends who go into like the financial world yeah where mm -hmm. you know they're making six figures they can like you know blow thousands of dollars at the bar in one weekend and not really care yeah but what you'll also find not everyone but in a lot of the cases those people who have the really stable income in their 20s who don't seem to run into any real like hardship, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. Financially, at least. 
Financially, yeah. You'll see, and I'm sure you experienced it too, with, you, with the conversations you were having with them. Like the con- So many of the conversations are just so empty. Yes, There's nothing of real empty. substance coming out. Mm-hmm. And, no, no, and a lot of it is unhappiness, actually, in terms of the fact that they look at their job as purely an execution to get to Friday. Yeah. Yeah. I don't like talking jobs with people, generally speaking, outside of my career. And it's not because I'm bored or I don't think that their careers are worthwhile. It's because they're not passionate talking about them. They don't care. So if they don't care, how am I supposed to care? You know, it's one of those things where I could see people that get stuck and it's the same monotonous lifestyle and rhythm over and over again, but they have stability in other places. And I do envy that at times. I envy that they have set hours that they maybe don't have to work nights and weekends, that the paychecks may be a little more stable as you alluded to. And but those are the trade-offs that I chose to make because of the personal happiness that I think that is befitting of me based on what I'm doing right now. And I think it's actually, you know, like you said, those two years at Groupon were like so dark and terrible. But I, you know, I, I did a number of different roles in a number of different um, organizations within Pepsi. And I remember like some that I liked more than others. And sure. and I remember my mom and I was like, oh, I hate this job or whatever. And she was like, you know, at least you're just figuring out what you don't want to do for the yeah, rest of your that's, life. That's very you valid. Know? And I, I heard this once somewhere that like your 20s are for figuring out what you don't want to do. Mm-hmm. Your 30s are for figuring out what you do want to do. And then your 40s and 50s, you're doing it. Like that's <laughs> yeah. the two decades or so you've got or more now. People yeah. work a lot longer to like actually do what you want um, and to enjoy it. And I mean, you're lucky if it happens for you sooner or, or maybe it happens for you later. But I've always kind of liked that idea that like, I think a lot of people struggle in their 20s with like figuring out, am I doing something that's worthwhile? Am I passionate about it? Am I making a paycheck? Does it look like so-and-so's mm-hmm. job? Is this the career I'm supposed to have? And I think instead that sort of is like a decade of time or, you know, five to 10 years of time when like it is a bit of discovering what you don't want to do or Definitely. learning like, oh, this is good. This isn't. You know? And it's different for every career path too, because I'm in a field in journalism, particularly in sports where... There are so many old school people that are in positions and pillars that you can't knock them off of. No matter how good you are or what you're doing with your job, like there's an old guard in place that is going to stay put on television and on radio and in print that is going to be there for quite some time. And, you know, many of the people that I've been reading since I was a kid are still in the same positions that they are now. And it's just kind of one of those things where you have to wait your turn particularly someone like me who stayed in a major market like Chicago. A lot of people in journalism go the route where they go to a small market to get on TV. They go to a small market to get on radio or to work in a newspaper. I bet on myself to stay here. And I've had mixed feelings about that over time. But ultimately, I think it was the best move to me for me to stay here. And it's so far it's worked out. Yeah. Okay, so bring us up to speed. How does NBC Sports come about? getting on TV regularly come about? Yeah, so when I was at Groupon, I was still working at the Sun-Times. I would work two nights a week um, after my nine to five and I would put together the preps page. And yeah, I was working crazy hours. I was taking my off days for Groupon and going to travel to the same events I used to cover. So I was keeping my foot in the door in basketball and I was always keeping my options open and making money off of freelance assignments. I just never really had found a way to make it full time or to make it viable for me. So once I actually left Groupon and once I started to figure out what I want to do next and whether I actually wanted to fully commit to journalism, 
that's when I just started playing around with things. I started a blog on my own with some friends and my brother called Poor Scholars, where it was just literally me being an editor and wearing different hats in the newspaper and journalism. I was a writer for Poor Scholars. You were, <laughs> and, and we had fun with it. And it was a great learning experience for me because I learned different tools and different aspects of just publishing that I didn't really know about. And it really prepared me for what my next step was with NBC. And with NBC, I got lucky. One of my friends, uh, Jeff Borzello at ESPN, just knew I was looking for work, knew I was trying to do something to get back in the mix. And my now boss at NBC Sports, Rob Doster, came up to him at an event in Pittsburgh and said, hey, do you know anybody who is independent, who writes about recruiting in college basketball that I should hire? Jeff said my name, I got a phone call the next day, and the rest was history. It's, again, it was one of those things where nothing really happened where I went out and made it happen. It just kind of fell into my lap, but I know that the work that I put in and what I did was helped you know, get me to that point. And the relationships. Oh, absolutely. The relationships was a huge part. Yeah. Dick to people around you, they're not going to give your name. Yeah. And and that's the big thing about this type of industry is is a lot. It's a lot of word of mouth and your peers have to respect what you're doing because your peers are the ones who push you to the editors and push you to other work. And I'm sure it's that way in a lot of other fields as well. But it's unique in a public forum like journalism because what you do produce is put out into the world as a public thing. So take us through like... The idea of the many hats or all the hats, right? Mm-hmm. There is there is the overall concept of like having to get your work, find your work, produce the work, right? All that stuff. But then even within, let's take one editorial column you're going to do. Mm-hmm. One like feature piece. Sure. Right? There's so much that goes into that. And each carries its own responsibility. Like yep. I'm talking from like getting on the phone with so-and-so all the way to the article being mm-hmm. published. Can you walk through what the actual editorial process So it first starts with the pitch and it figures out how you're going to actually take this story idea that you have in your head and make it a sentence or a line that's going to be relatable to an audience. It's going to make them want to click or read on it, kind of similar to a podcast topic or something where you're generating an audience. So it starts with that as square one. And wait, so how you come up with like your pitch idea, like that's from you like watching certain kids at play and then you have an idea like, oh, it'd be so interesting to tell this story or whatever. Generally speaking, yeah. I will have editors who will say, hey, like I'm interested in this. Would you want to do this? That's few and far between. Generally speaking, the things that I'm pitching are kind of what I'm working on, which is a, a great freedom that is part of the reason why I continue to do what I do as opposed to maybe try to jump in with something else. I love the freedom that I have with my pitches. Yeah. Okay, so we start with the pitch. Mm-hmm. And now so just walk us through how the article comes to fruition and ultimately gets published. And you can even just use like an actual example. Anyway. Sure. So generally, a lot of my editors that I've worked with, that I have good long-term, years-long relationships with, they know my voice, they know what I'm trying to accomplish and articulate, so they'll usually kind of let me have my freedom with it. And it's nice to have, I'll maybe send a draft and they'll go over some edits, maybe some structural changes, why didn't you ask on this, why didn't you go into this? But generally speaking, I have a good level of creative freedom, which is something I've really worked to try to get and thankfully I have in most cases but in other instances you're working with new editors people who might not be familiar with your work and it's a much more arduous process where like you're really going over everything the nuts and bolts of every paragraph every sentence why did you talk to this person how did you talk to this person you're breaking down the details of it and you're just basically trying to get as much background and research together as possible so that when everything comes at you 
the research questions, the editors, you have all the answers for everything and you're ready to move on because your readers are going to have the same questions. If, you're, if your readers are left asking questions at the end, you didn't do your service to get them the proper information. Even in the research aspect of this too, right? Like you carry mm -hmm. a pretty big responsibility that you have the phone numbers in your phone of some of like the most important people in the sports world, sure. right? How do you manage that basically just that like don't lose your book. phone yeah. yeah yeah right and the fact there's that, yeah you know like you i think you've told me like you've had text conversations with lebron james agent right worldwide west whatever yeah it's just there's there's random things and random times where you never know like who calls you or who texts you about something like sometimes you'll get a lead for a story from something random people that you never expected to call or text you like it's just one of those things where when you start to like be in in a world of something, whether it's basketball or music or anything like that, you never know like when worlds will collide or when somebody will reach out to you. And yeah, it's just one of those random things where I, there's sometimes where I didn't expect a story to pop in my lap and it did where you get a phone call. It's like, hey, did you hear about this? This is a great story you maybe should be looking into. And it's not even an editor. Or it could be one of my friends, you know, like somebody who just knows I love basketball and good stories and they just bring it to me. So yeah, the process is, is always kind of the same from there, but the process of finding the stories is very different every time. Mm -hmm. All right. So before we wrap up, can you let our listeners know just where they can find your work, where they can find you, where they can get yeah, most of my work you can find on NBC Sports, uh, the main college basketball talk website. And then NBC Sports Chicago is where I have a lot of my high school stuff for Illinois. Uh, high School Lights, my television show, Friday nights. Uh, we just finished up our season finale last week, so fortunately can't watch it here, but all of our stuff's online as well. And yeah, my Twitter is at Hoops. my last name P-H-I-L-L-I-P-S, hoops, all one word. Uh, that's where most of my work will be found. Awesome. Okay, to wrap this up then, We'll go one by one. Uh, Scott, you'll go last. Victoria to kick us off. Our topic today, how do you wear all the hats? All right. So I'm actually less about like what we discussed today and more just about sort of my personal experience in this recently, especially like with my blog. Um, I think wearing, how do you wear all the hats? Um, well, <laughs> you just kind of have, you just kind of do out of necessity. Mm -hmm. But I think that for me, the hats that I've been reluctant to wear when I do actually just figure out how to do it on my own, I feel so much more accomplished and I feel really empowered when I'm like, wow, I figured out how to do that when I was like really on the verge of emailing someone or asking someone else how to do it. And you know what? I just took that extra 10 minutes to kind of figure it out myself. And now, okay, I know how to do it and I can wear that hat in the future. Um, so I think, yeah, I think the biggest part is just taking a little bit of extra time to figure out how to do those those tasks that might not be what you wanted to do or what you plan to do as part of your venture, but are necessary, especially at the beginning when you don't have anyone else to help you do it. My answer, how do you wear all the hats? I, I think, you know, what I pulled out of this was you almost have to treat the different tasks you're doing as not just tasks, but processes. So if you look at it like a process, like writing an article, there's some type of linear flow to it, which can then help construct your day in terms of what makes sense to do in order. But then within the individual tasks, you know, you don't just like sit down and be like, all right, I gotta do this thing, where do I start? You understand and develop some type of process to get each thing accomplished. 
Scott, how do you wear all the hats? Time management and planning properly. Uh, the biggest thing for me is that I used to be so scatterbrained with how I would approach things. I would do things kind of as they came and I would do things last minute on deadline. And as I grew more and I had more responsibilities, I realized that the work I was putting forth was not my best without properly planning it. So for me, it's having as best of a schedule as I can, given my chaotic schedule. You know, some days I'm going to have to work at different hours than others. Some weekends I'm going to have to work some nights, but I have to try to set a schedule and a time that I'm putting forth towards everything to make sure that it's as best as it can be. And really, that's been the biggest part of it, I think, is making sure that the work that you put in before the work itself is very organized and cohesive. Scott Phillips, thank you for joining the show. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, guys. It was a lot of fun. That wrapped up our conversation. Did you, the listener, enjoy this episode? If so, the best compliment you can give us is a rating and review on iTunes. Ratings and reviews help more people find the show. Therefore, more people get to discover their inner awesome. While you're leaving that review, go ahead and subscribe to the show on whatever platform it is you listen, whether that is iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or the various other podcasting platforms in which you can find the show. For full show notes, references, and resources from this episode, you can grab it all at discoveryourinnerawesome.com. Also check out our 100-plus episode archive while you're there. whole lot of awesome for you to dig into. That'll do it for this one. Thank you again to our guests for joining. For Victoria Cohen, I am Raj Nation. You have been listening to the Discover Your Inner Awesome podcast. We will see you next time. But in the meantime, take care and be awesome today. <laughs>